Okay, today's lesson, we're going to pick up where we left off from last time in John chapter 12. Um, as Adam was just filling us in here to bring everyone uh, up to speed here, this is uh, six days before the Passover time. Uh, Jesus is about to be crucified. He, he participates at a banquet at the home of his good friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. <clears throat> Lazarus was the same one who was uh, raised from the dead by Jesus after four days in the grave. <clears throat> and uh, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with some very expensive perfume. And last lesson we talked about how Judas protested. This money should have been sold and given to the poor. And guess who was keeper of the contribution for the poor? It was Judas who was skimming money off for himself, and uh, we looked at the sin of greed and and uh, versus generosity, and, and how important that is all over the scriptures. Last time, so Jesus is becoming very popular with the people through the miraculous signs he's performing. He just healed a man who was born blind. He rose Lazarus from the dead. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, going right to the high priest, decide that they want to kill him. And uh, so the people are, the, the, the feast is coming, the great feast of the Passover where everyone comes to Jerusalem and the people are wondering if this famous prophet and miracle worker is going to be making an appearance in Jerusalem during the Passover. So the stage is set, there's a great expectation, uh, the enemies are looking to capture Jesus, the people are waiting for this great prophet, uh, all kinds of rumors going on. So this is the background for what we're about to look at today. Let's, let's pick up the story in John chapter 12 and verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 to 16. And I want you to pay attention to all of the details in these verses because there's a lot here. John chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So just outline of the action of the story, Jesus decides to go into Jerusalem. The people find out. Great multitude come out to meet him, and they take branches of palm trees and cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they shout Hosanna, uh, shouts of praise, and refer to him as the king of Israel. So this is what goes on here. Jesus finds a young donkey and sits on it as he's entering Jerusalem. So uh, a couple of immediate observations. Some of us who come from certain religious backgrounds will immediately identify this is the story of Palm Sunday. This is they take the palm branches and they're greeting Jesus coming in. I was, I was raised Roman Catholic, so Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, 
was uh, we'd read this story, we'd talk about it, there's the expectation before uh, Good Friday and, and, and Easter. And so this, this, was a, this was a big, this was a major event in the church calendar uh, growing up. And I see some heads nodding here, so there are other people who from similar, similar kind of backgrounds are familiar with that. And I remember going to church as, as a boy, going to Catholic church, and at the, end of the, at the end of the service, they would hand out little bunches of these long, skinny, twirly uh, palm leaves or palm fronds. And you take them home with you. And some people would put them up around the mirror of their car, the rearview mirror. They'd mount them up there. Some people would, if there was a crucifix in the home on the wall, they'd drape it around that or they'd weave it together in the form of a cross. So people would do things with this to remember this occasion all throughout the year. So uh, it, it bring, this story brings back memories of that. So this is the story of Jerusalem entering, uh, story of Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of praise from the multitude. I mean, most of the things we've studied so far in the Gospel of John are only mentioned in the Gospel of John. This story right here is mentioned in all four Gospels. The story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. So yeah, first, first question is, well, why is this so important that it's mentioned in all four Gospels? And uh, it, it's mentioned in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke, Luke 19. And the, you'll notice that the details, there, there are different details provided in each of these accounts. And uh, I want to look at one of the other three accounts to, to, to look at some of the other details of the story in one of the parallel accounts. So I want to read together Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. So just remember what we learned here in this story and read Matthew's account. And I encourage you, we're only going to just read this one. I encourage you on your own to, to definitely go back and read the, the, the other parallel accounts as well. So Matthew chapter... 21, starting in verse 1. I'm reading uh, again from the New King James Version. Uh, Starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says any, anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on him, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitude who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they come into Jerusalem... All the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I'm sure you notice that there are some different details in this story. Are they different? Are they contradictory? Uh, So just some of the things that jumped out to me, obviously, 
In the account in John, it just sounds like Jesus found some random donkey on the side of the road. Here, it explains that he sent two of his disciples to go and find the donkeys, plural. There are two of them. In this story, there are two animals involved on the trip to Jerusalem. There's the mature donkey, uh, which has been had been uh, uh, you know a, a fully mature adult animal. And there, also there's a colt or a young donkey. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a little donkey there too, a new one. And the clothing of the disciples is placed on both animals, and it says he sat on both of them. So I'm trying to imagine, how does Jesus sit on two donkeys at the same time? And I don't know, did he sit on one for a while and then jump to the other one? Or were they walking right next to each other? Tidy? I don't know how they did that, but it says that he rode two donkeys, a mature one and a younger one going into Jerusalem. So, uh, and then the people were shouting different things here. They, were, they, were, they, said, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. So this, they're, they're, they're saying different things, shouting out in the crowd. So this is the, the account in Matthew. So we see some things that weren't in the John's account. From Mark's account, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, is very similar. Uh, but it's, it says... It, it only mentions one, one donkey in there. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll point out in Mark 11, verse 10, it says, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. That's one of the things they're shouting. They're, they're, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. And then Luke, Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. We're not going to read that, but I'll, just, I'll share with you some of the things, the details in that story. Regarding the colt that Jesus rode, it says it was a colt, on which no one had ever sat. So this was not broken in. It wasn't, uh, you know, no harness, no saddle. No one had ever rode, rode this donkey before, brand new. Also, it says the colt was found tied up and had to be loosed. And in this story, the owners asked the disciples, why are you untying our colt? It's an obvious question, which Jesus had prepared them for. Uh, and then the Pharisees... Hear what the in, in, in Luke's account, the Pharisees hear what all these crowds are saying. Uh, the, the, you know, hear the the, the 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 coming of the King, the Son of David. They hear what the crowd is saying, and they they're upset uh, when they hear, "Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord." And they tell Jesus, "Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut those people up." <laughs> what they're saying is is outrageous. And Jesus responds with a classic response. He says, if the people were quiet, he says, even the stones would immediately cry out, meaning you can't shut this one down. This is even nature itself would, would cry out uh, as he's entering the city. So uh, anyways, four different accounts, different details. And uh, so what do we do with this? Um, <clears throat> One thing, people, when they see different details and different accounts and apparent discrepancies, they'll say, ah, okay. Obviously, there are errors and contradictions in the scriptures. Look at this, what it says over here, and look at, at this, what it says over there. Now, the fact that there are differences between the stories mean there's a contradiction. Not necessarily. No, absolutely not. Uh, just a reminder, uh, Paul said all scripture is inspired by God. All of it is. Uh, Peter said, and, and, and that's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. Peter said in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
that holy men from God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the, the we have to understand this that this isn't just people's random recollections over time that the Holy Spirit is inspiring what's going on. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse 35, the scriptures can't be broken. He quoted the, the word of God. He said the scriptures can't be broken. So the attitude of Jesus, Peter and Paul was the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're all inspired and they can't be broken. So what do we do when there are differences? One story talks about one donkey. One story talks about two donkeys. So what's the truth here? Uh, and, and, and the, the critics of the Bible will say, well, this story was right and this story obviously is wrong and they'll, they'll choose between the stories and they'll pit them against each other. I think that, uh, that if, if we really believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, we look at all the stories and say, okay, is there a way that all of these stories can be true at the same time? And, and just approach that. Is, is there necessarily a contradiction here? Now, uh, my assumption would be, coming from that point of view, of view, that there were two animals. Some of the accounts just talk about one. Now, he's, he's on a journey into the city. Maybe he was riding two at one point in time, riding one at another point in time, or he was riding two, but they only talk about one. Uh, it it does, doesn't say necessarily. And the other thing, the people in the crowd, they're not shouting the same thing. Well, Okay, now, now I didn't. I, I want to give give an example here. This is going to produce some reactions, positive and negative, in the group here. Okay, a few years ago we had a presidential election, and Donald Trump would fly around the country in his his big jet, and he'd have big crowds, and the crowds would be shouting things out to him. And what do they shout? Some people would shout, "Build the wall, build the wall," and other people would be shouting, "Lock her up, lock her up." Now, if one account of the rally said, and the people were shouting, build the wall, and another account said, and the people were shouting, lock her up, is that a contradiction? No, because they were shouting both things. So there, there's a crowd of people, they're shouting all different things, and, and so some of the accounts will talk about one thing, some will some talk about another. So the fact that they're recording different details doesn't mean there's a contradiction. This is a dynamic, moving story as Jesus is traveling down the road with big crowds around. So, uh, and, and the other thing is, to me, the fact that there are different stories and the details are different from each other uh, gives me a greater confidence. If people were getting together and trying to make up a phony story uh, and, and, and foist a, a false narrative on future generations, well, they'd make sure that their stories told said exactly the same thing. But these are independent accounts, and they're all a little different from each other. So this, this to me, actually points to the ring of truth and authenticity, the fact that different people looking at this from different angles are telling slightly different stories, but they're not necessarily contradictory. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that this is a good example to me where you have four accounts that are all slightly different from each other. It doesn't mean there's a discrepancy or an error. Um, now, it says at the end of the account that we just read, it says at the time the disciples did not understand the significance of these events. Uh, in, in John chapter 12 and verse 16, it says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered 
that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. These things were written about him. What's that talking about? It's talking about these things were written about him in the Old Testament. They saw after, at the time, they didn't, they didn't put the pieces together, but after Jesus was resurrected, then they understood, ah, all these things that happened, these are all fulfillments of different prophecies written before him. So, you know, some, some uh, obvious questions, well, well how, did, how and when did they figure that out? You know, Luke 24 talks about Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he, he, exp- he opened up the scriptures to the two on the road to Emmaus, and then he got together with the, with the apostles, and he says that uh, in Luke uh, 24, starting in verse 44, uh, he said, all the things had to be fulfilled that were written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then it says he opened up their understanding that they could, they could, they could uh, grasp the meaning of the scriptures. They could comprehend the scriptures. So this is so Jesus explained, they opened up their minds to understand the Old Testament prophecies in one way or another after he was raised from the dead. And so they only later on did they understand could they put the pieces together of all the things that happened in the story fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. So a uh, few questions which we're going to be uh, digging into in the rest of the lesson here. One of them is, uh, uh, when Jesus says, when it says that um, they, rem- they, re- they remembered afterwards all the things that were written about him, what are they referring to? What Old Testament prophecies are talked about here? In, in your footnotes, you may see one or two. But is there more to the story than that? Uh, the other thing that I wonder is some of the details in this story are unusual. And uh, riding two donkeys, that's unusual, I would say. Ride, riding two donkeys with a clothing. So why the donkeys in the story? Why is it so important? All, of, all four stories have to mention he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. But what does it matter if he walked in or he rode a horse? or Why does it, ha- why does it have to be a donkey, first of all? Why do they have to mention that? And, uh, and then the details of the story. Why were people putting palm branches on the road? That seems like a strange thing to do. I mean, the, the donkeys could trip on the branches. That's less like, that. why would you want to do that? This is, this, this, it's kind of like maybe they're rolling out the red carpet, but where in scripture is it talk about people putting branches down in front of somebody as they're walking along? It seems, that just seems like an odd thing to do. Uh, so, these questions are, are rattling around in my mind, and perhaps we'll find some, some, some answers to these as we go through the rest of the lesson here. And, and then the things that the people are sh- in the crowd are shouting out, these different things that they're saying, is there any special significance uh, uh, to them? So uh, first thing I want to take a look at, and I know that, that, that uh, this is probably not on the top of everybody's mind, I want to take a look at donkeys, first of all, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Facts about, I did a study on donkeys so that I really be able to dig into this lesson. A few facts about donkeys. Now, anyone who's reading in a King James Version Bible, it doesn't say donkey there, does it? Okay? It doesn't say donkey in the King James Version. It's, it's a three-letter word that starts with an A, okay? And oh. this is, we're in, a, we're in a family situation here, so I can, I can say what it is. It's called an ass, A-S-S, all right? And 
all the older translations, King James, American Standard, Revised Standard, Douay Rheims, the old Catholic version, it's referred to as an ass. So the question, one question is, well, why in the world did they change from ass to donkey? Well, I think we all know the reason why they changed it is because the meaning of that word has morphed over time. The word, and just a little uh, linguistics here, uh, for those of us from Irish backgrounds uh, may, may appreciate this more than others, but um, <clears throat> the word ass just meant donkey. It's from a Latin word. No pejorative sense about it, all right? Unfortunately, there's a very similar word in Old English, totally different background, A-R-S-E, which is pronounced almost exactly the same. And those of us who grew up in Irish households, I see some smiling faces here. Okay, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, these two words sound so much like each other that they kind of got, the meanings got confused with each other. So for obvious reasons, the modern translators from the last couple hundred years said, let's change it to donkey and leave it at that. So that's why uh, the difference in the word. The other thing is... Uh, a, a male donkey or ass is called a jack. The female is called a jenny. All right? And a baby donkey is called a foal. A young donkey is referred to as a colt. Same thing as a young horse. So some of the terms here, a jack, when you see the expression a jack ass is a male donkey. That's really what it means. So... Uh, on the other hand, now some of you don't realize this. I think I see some smiling faces in the room here. <laughs> some of you don't realize this. There's a difference between a donkey and a mule. Those of us who don't grow up in the countryside don't appreciate the difference. What is a what's the difference between a mule and a donkey? Well, uh, I, I'm glad that you asked that question. <laughs> a mule comes from uh, mating a jack donkey, a male donkey, with a female horse, a male horse. They cross, somehow or other, they crossbreed, and they've been doing it for, for you know, thousands of years. And they, what they produce is a mule. It's somewhere between a horse and a donkey. So it's bigger than a donkey, but uh, it's not as big as a horse. And, you know, I think of, you know, 20 mule team borax. That was the, that was, that was the you know, they, they use, they're, they're good pack animals. Uh, the, the mules, and, uh, but they're different than donkeys. The, the funny thing to me is that the, the word for uh, following this, I'm, I'm following in the Greek in the Old Testament, and, and it talks about donkeys, and it talks about mules in the Old Testament. And the word for mule in Greek is half donkey, okay? Or if you were using the old term, it'd be, you could figure out what that means. So in the course of studying this lesson... In the course of studying this lesson, I got to realize at the age of 65, a number of names that I was being called by various family members when, in my younger years, now I know what they were talking about. They were referring to members of the equine family. Okay. So... For those who are, who are dealing in, you're, this, is, this is a family discussion here. We're gonna, we're gonna, that's as far as we're going to go on this. So mules and donkeys are mentioned throughout the Bible. And so this is, I've been setting up all week thinking, how am I going to get Adam with a, with a tough question all right now? So, so here's the question, Adam. I hope you're ready for it. Are I you ready? I'm ready. Okay. 
Can you think of any famous stories about mules or donkeys in the Bible? Any famous stories about mules or donkeys? Any famous donkey stories in the Bible besides this one, obviously? Oh, when Joseph got sold into slavery. When Joseph got sold into slavery. I don't remember that story. Uh, you know, the merchant had donkeys. Okay, that's a, I think that's a good point. They did. That's, that's very good. And Joseph got sold into slavery. You got me on that one, Adam. So you get, you get, you get a double point for that one. I didn't think about that. Can you think of any others? Can you think of any maybe donkeys that had some unusual abilities like being able to talk back to their rider? Can you think of any examples of that? Oh, 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 Ashland. Uh, <laughs> close, Balaam, Balaam. It had, it had, we knew it had a couple A's in there. It's Balaam. So Balaam the prophet... The story in Numbers 22 is the story of Balaam and his donkey. And the donkey speaks back to him. So he's a very famous donkey in the Bible. Uh, the story, uh, 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 yeah, uh, somebody mentioned Saul was out, was out looking for missing donkeys and, and uh, when he was, was picked to be king. So that's, that's uh, one story in 1 uh, in, uh, Samuel. And... Um, the story of Samson. Do you remember the unusual weapon that Samson used? It wasn't a clue. It wasn't a baseball bat to kill a thousand Philistines. What did he use to a, kill them? A donkey's... Uh, a javelin. A donkey's close. A donkey's jawbone. jawbone. He used a donkey's jawbone. That's an unusual weapon. He killed a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone and sang a song after he did it to commemorate the event. Now, there's a story, one, one mule story I can think of is the story when uh, David's son Adonijah, in 1 Kings chapter 1, when David's son appoints himself king, while David's still alive as the next king, David and Bathsheba. Uh, come up with another plan, and they appoint Solomon king. And what David says is, have Solomon ride on my mule, my half donkey. So that's what, uh, that's what he did there. And then another one that actually may tie into this story, in Genesis chapter 22, the story of the sacrifice, Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, his beloved son. He takes him up, carrying the wood, to the place of sacrifice. When Abraham gets the call, he saddles up the donkey and he and his son make the journey by donkey to the place where the sacrifice is going to be made. Okay, certain foreshadowings there, I, 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 I see anyway. Uh, now the significance of the donkey in John chapter 12, it's quoting from an old... Old Testament prophecy. In John chapter 12, it says that Jesus, in verses 14, 15, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. As it is written. Where is it written? You look at the footnotes of most of your Bibles, it will point out that's a reference to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, who's Zechariah? So Zechariah is a prophet 
during the time when the Persians allowed the Jews to go back home after the Babylonian captivity. So he's writing somewhere around 500 years before the time of Christ. Zechariah is saturated with all kinds of prophecies about the Messiah, about the Christ. And I want to go, let's go back and read Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I think this is, it's really, it's great to go back and read it from the, from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I'm reading from a translation that's based on the Septuagint. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Proclaim it aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and saving. He is gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even a young foal. Or it could be translated, the word even could be translated as an. Donkey even or an, uh, or, or an, as young foal. And then I'm going to, re- I'm going to continue to read verse 10. He will dis- utterly destroy the chariots out of Ephraim and the horse out of Jerusalem. The bow of war shall be utterly destroyed. There shall be abundance and peace among the nations. He shall rule over the waters as far as the sea and over the rivers to the ends of the earth. So this is a... This is a story about a king who's going to rule over the earth, the whole earth. And um, it describes him uh, as being meek and riding on a donkey and the foal of a donkey. Uh, and, and I encourage you, you can read from Brenton's translation online if you don't have a Septuagint available to you. So... Um, and, and the quote in the Matthew 21 version of this story, it's a quote directly taken from the Septuagint. John 12 is, is more of a paraphrase of that. Um, but the, the, the elements that I notice in this prophecy is the people, in this case referred to as the daughters, are called to rejoice and proclaim that their king is coming. He's gentle and humble, and he's mounted on a donkey, and it could be even or and a young foal of a donkey. And, and, then, and then the verse after that, verse 10, it talks about this king who will, the donkey-mounted king, and he's riding a donkey, and he's going to be defeating those who are riding horses and who have chariots. So, you know, this makes no sense militarily that this would happen. This humble king... And then he would bring peace and reign over all the earth. And he, he would defeat his much more powerful enemies who were mounted on much more uh, prestigious and powerful uh, 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 ways of travel there. Now, great rulers, how do great rulers in the Bible get around? Do they drive donkeys? No, they don't, they don't ride donkeys. What, what do, how do great rulers get around? I think of the story in Genesis 41 when Pharaoh elevates Joseph to be second in charge of all of Egypt, he puts him in the number two chariot, has him go down the street, fancy clothes, signet ring, in the chariot, saying, this is the man, this is, this is the guy who's going to be in charge of, of Egypt under me. Uh, in Exodus 14, when Pharaoh mounts up with his army, to pursue the Israelites who are fleeing Egypt and going through the Red Sea. 
Pharaoh gets in his chariot. That's how powerful rulers travel. They travel in chariots or maybe sometime in horses. Uh, you know, David, David, the closest I come to a king on a donkey is David had a half donkey. He had a mule, but even that's a step up from a donkey. They're, they're bigger and they're more powerful and they can, they can carry a, a heavier load. So uh, uh, David and Solomon rode, rode on a mule, but I'm having a hard time thinking of any kings in the Bible who would, run, who would ride something that was typical of poor people and common people like a donkey in this story. Um, <clears throat> Justin Martyr wrote about the significance of this prophecy in a letter called Dialogue with Fry. It was one of, my, one of my favorite early Christian writings. And <clears throat> he's explaining to Trifo the significance of this prophecy and its fulfillment right here about the coming of Jesus and the kind of king that he would be. And uh, he, he backs up and he says this, this not only ties to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, but it also, it also it was foreshadowed by another prophecy, one in Genesis 49. And we're gonna go, I'm going to go back and look at that and ref- refresh our minds that we looked at that in, in the Genesis series that we went through several months ago. But I want to just take another look at that to refresh because it does talk about a donkey in that story. And this is when Jacob on his deathbed is blessing his 12 sons and he gives a very unusual blessing to his fourth son, Judah. And this is the one that the great promise of the, of the future king comes down to. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 49 to refresh our memory. Because this is another passage that talks about a donkey. Genesis chapter 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From being a shoot, my son, you've grown up. He bows down and slept as a lion and a cub. Who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from his loins until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the expectation of the nations. Now pay attention to verse 11. Binding his colt to a vine, and his donkey's colt to its branch, he will wash his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. So this is another mention about this is connecting the Messiah to a, a, uh, the cult of a donkey in this story. So I want to read what, uh, so, so in this, from this prophecy here, we see it's talking about a ruler who will come, who will descend from Judah. He's the one who will hold the scepter. His brothers will dow, bow, bow down before him. And then there's a reference to a donkey's colt that he has that's bound up. So with that in mind, and with what we just read from Zechariah chapter 9, I'm going to read from Justin Martyr uh, to see some interesting things that he said about this story. And he, remember, he's arguing with a Jew over the faith, faith in Christ. So he's explaining the significance of, of things that happened in Jesus' life to a Jew. I'm reading from Dialogue with Trifo 
chapter 53. This is in Anasim Fathers, Volume 1, pages 221-222. So Justin says, And that expression, binding his foal to the vine, and his ass's foal to the vine tendril, was a declaring beforehand both the works wrought by him at his first advent, and also the belief in him which the nations would repose. For they were like an unharnessed foal, which was not bearing a yoke on its neck until this Christ came, and sent his disciples to instruct them. And they bore the yoke of his word, and yielded the neck to endure all hardships for the sake of the good things promised by himself and expected by them. And truly our Lord Jesus Christ, when he intended to go into Jerusalem, requested his disciples to bring him a certain ass along with its foal, which was bound in an entrance of a village called Bethphage. And having seated himself on it, he entered into Jerusalem. And this was done by him in the manner in which it was prophesied in precise terms that it would be done by the Christ. And as the fulfillment was recognized, it became a clear proof that he was the Christ. And though all this happened and is proved from Scripture, you're still hard-hearted. No, it was prophesied by Zechariah, one of the twelve prophets, that such would take place in the following words. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout and declare, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king shall come to you righteous, bringing salvation, meek and lowly, riding on an ass and the foal of an ass. Now that the spirit of prophecy, as well as the patriarch Jacob, mentioned both an ass and his foal, which would be used by him, and further, that he, as I previously said, requested his disciples to bring both beasts, this fact was a prediction to you of the synagogue, along with the Gentiles, who believe in him. For as the unharnessed colt was a symbol of the Gentiles, even so the harnessed ass was a symbol of your nation. For you possess the law which was imposed on you by the prophets. Moreover, the prophet Zechariah foretold that this same Christ would be smitten and his disciples scattered, which also took place. And that was, of course, that was a reference there. He's saying, by the way, Zechariah, while we're on the subject of Zechariah, Zechariah also said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, which was from uh, Zechariah chapter 13. Verse 7. So uh, so Justin, he's making an interesting observation. He says, first of all, the way that Jesus entered Jerusalem was a fulfillment of prophecy. And the second, second thing he's saying here, which I never thought about, just consider it, I can't prove it. He said the reason that there were two animals that he rode, one was the older, broken in, harnessed donkey, and the other one was a, a, was a was a young colt that no one had ever ridden. It never had a harness on it. Uh, and he said that the, the, the older one that had, had the harness represents the Jews because they had been basically harnessed in by the law of Moses. And the unharnessed one, the young one, represented the Gentiles, which would be most or all of us in this room here that uh, had never been under the yoke of the law, but who would be taking on the yoke of Christ and his commands uh, to, to participate in the blessings that would follow. And, uh, and so he's challenging uh, uh, Trypho, a Jew, to believe in his own prophets. 
that were that were these things that were said by Zechariah uh, uh, 500 years before the time of Christ and by uh, by Jacob and written down by Moses uh, uh, well over a thousand years before the time of Christ. Uh, I want to take a look at another thing here too in this story. The significance of what the people were shouting, what the crowds were shouting. In the account in John 12, they were shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. This is a direct word-for-word quote from the Septuagint in Psalm 118, verse 26. And the, uh, it's, and, and the Septuagint version is, is designated Psalm 117, but uh, it's, it's the same passage. Basically, it's, it's the psalm that's between the longest one and the shortest one in the Bible. It's that one. That's the one right there. And I want to read this, because this is a direct quote from it, and I, it opened up my mind to the significance of what's going on here. So let, let's read from that psalm. Uh, psalm 118, I'm going to read verses, just verses 10 to 29. Uh, if you can follow along to an extent, in, uh, if you have a, a Bible based on the Septuagint, it would be number 117. Um, and I'll warn you right now, there. If you, if you have a different Bible, one that's not based on Septuagint, I encourage you to uh, find a Brenton's or some other Septuagint version to check this out for yourself rather than trust what I'm about to share with you. But keep in mind what the people are shouting, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord, exact word-for-word word quote from the Septuagint. So I want to read the same version here, which varies from the Masoretic text on, on one important point, to get an idea of, and this was the Bible that was used by the Old Testament, used by the early church for the first 300 years overwhelmingly. Okay, I'm going to start reading in verse 10. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. They circled and surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. They surrounded me like bees around a honeycomb. And they were inflamed like fire in a thorn bush. But in the name of the Lord, I defended myself against them. I was shoved and disheartened that I might fall. But the Lord took hold of me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He became my salvation. The sound of exceeding joy and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord worked its power. The right hand of the Lord exalted me. The right hand of the Lord worked its power. I shall not die, but live and tell of the Lord's works." The Lord chastened and corrected me, but he did not give me up to death. Open the gates of righteousness to me. I will enter therein and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall go in through it. I will give thanks to you for you heard me and you became my salvation. The stone the builders rejected. The same has become the head of the corner. And this came about from the Lord. It's wonderful in our eyes. This is the day the Lord made. Let us rejoice and be glad therein. O Lord, save us now. O Lord, prosper us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. 
God is the Lord and He revealed Himself to us. Appoint a feast for yourselves decked with branches, even to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I shall exalt you. I will give thanks to you for you heard me. You became my salvation. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His mercy endures forever. So, Let's put the pieces together. This is a righteous man who's encircled by powerful enemies. He's making a grand entrance and passing through the gates. It mentions the stone the builders rejected. The same has become the chief cornerstone which Jesus applied to himself in in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then in verse 26, it says, Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord, which is what the people were shouting in in, uh, John chapter 12, verse 13. In verse 27, it says in the Septuagint, The Lord is God, and He revealed Himself to us. The Lord is God, and He revealed Himself to us. That expression, revealed Himself. I wondered, okay, Where else does that expression or word show up? Is this talking about the divinity of Christ, that that God is revealing himself to us? The same term to reveal or make manifest, the same word, the same expression in the the Septuagint where it shows up in the New Testament, just to give you an idea. Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 12, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared or has manifested itself to all men. The same expression is used in Acts chapter 27 where Paul is talking about, there's a story about Paul who's lost in the the terrible storm at sea that the the ship is going to crack up and it says in Acts 27 verse 20, neither sun nor stars had appeared for many days. So this is the same word They didn't reveal themselves for many days. You get a picture from the way the word is used, what it means. So it says, the Lord is God, and he revealed himself. He showed himself. He made himself manifest to us. In this story, verse 27, right after the verse that we looked at, that, that, you know, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 27... I thought, wow, this is interesting, and it's different from the Masoretic text. It says that his way is decked with branches, even to the horns of the altar. The altar is the place of sacrifice. So I got the the picture. He's on his way in through the gates. The way in is decked with branches, and he's heading to the place where the sacrifice is going to take place. I, I, I thought, wow decked with branches? I wonder why in the world were the people crying out, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord and then putting branches down on the road? I think it's because they believed he was the one who fulfilled that they were waiting for, who was spoken about in, in this in this psalm here. And then the, the other things that they're shouting in the other four Gospels, they're, they're referring to him as the king, the son of David, and the kingdom of our father David. These are clear references 
to the prophecy that was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a thousand years before Christ, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of the eternal kingdom and his reign would never end. He's, this is the son of David that was, was prophesied. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, the prophecy is given. It's, con, it's confirmed in Psalm 89, Psalm 132. And, and I think Psalm 2 is talking about the same thing, the great king who would be rejected by the rulers of the earth. And it's confirmed to Mary when the angel comes and speaks to Mary, she explains that this is the one who's going to inherit the kingdom of his father David in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 37. So pulling the pieces together of this entrance into Jerusalem, here's what I think is going on. This grand entrance into Jerusalem with all the fanfare is establishing Jesus as the one who fulfilled the prophecies of Psalm 118. He's the one who was rejected by the rulers of the nations. He entered in righteousness through the gates with shouts of joy. The people said, blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. This is all in Psalm 118. It says that the Lord God appeared and made himself manifest to the people, which is exactly what Jesus did. He's God in the flesh, the Son of God. He's, he's divine. And he fulfilled all the prophecies about the great king who would come, the one descended from David. And he came as a king riding on a donkey and the foal of a donkey, exactly as it said in Zechariah chapter 9, is the humble king, not riding in a chariot or a horse, but a humble king riding on the lowest possible means of transportation, coming in on a donkey. And that was also foreshadowed by what Jacob said to his son Judah in the great prophecy about the ruler who would come in the future. And even this donkey ride to the place where he would ultimately be executed, I think is even foreshadowed in the story of, of Abraham and, and sacrificing his son Isaac, being willing to sacrifice his, his beloved son Isaac and carrying the wood up to the, his son carrying the wood up to the place of the sacrifice uh, in, in many ways is a foreshadowing. So the, that's the significance of the donkey. And even the branches being laid down on the road. I think this is a fulfillment. The people believed, uh, or God was showing, that this is the one. And his way, the way into the city is decked with branches. So the significance for us, I hope this really increases your faith and, and, and helps you to appreciate the depth of the stories in the New Testament as fulfilling all of these prophecies that were written about hundreds and thousands of years beforehand. And just as Justin Martyr used this story to convince a Jew from the evidence of Old Testament prophecies, I hope that we can know our Bible well enough to prove the faith to other skeptical unbelievers. Amen. Amen.